Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. See all the names there. Thank you very much, Julian, Editorial Intelligence. Thank you all for coming on a, uh, for the early morning session post Mr. Vasey. I feel very analog with my... Uh, my notebook, but you'll have to know it's an editorial intelligence sponsored notebook, so it's rather cool. Um, <clears throat> just to set a bit of the context of what we're talking about today, I'm going to introduce my, our panelists and then make some introductory remarks, get involved in the discussion, a conversation rather than a, a lecture, and then throw it out to you, of course, for, for your suggestions and submissions and thoughts about what they're saying, what we're saying, whether we've got it all wrong or whether we've got it all right. We'd love to hear, and there are Twitter hashtags that I'm sure are in the... Um, the programs you have. Um, as Julia mentioned, I edit Business Light, which is the management section of the FT, and I'm a good friend of editorial intelligences. Um, we look at all sorts of trends, technologies, entrepreneurship, and really the human side of how businesses are run. I'm going to go to my right and carry on. Um, Matthew Yeomans, to my right, is a writer consultant. Um, he advises companies on social media strategy and storytelling, and he's also involved in trying to launch an app, which is being crowdfunded. Um, which is an interesting experience from what I hear um, from him. Um, I wasn't great when I started <laughs> doing it last week. <laughs> um, Maria Ingold is the CEO of My Reality, um, which is a technical consultancy in video on demand. Um, she's an expert on the infrastructure around video on demand, helps set up the VOD service for Virgin, among others. Going on, Stefano Cantarelli is from Huawei. Uh, Stefano's had a whole range of experiences in the mobile world from Vodafone earlier now to Huawei and to encapsulate his bio in a line is almost impossible so you guys can look at his uh, more extensive one in the book. Uh, I had a lot of air when I started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was bald when I started. Um, Narek Patel from PayPal um, is Brazilian and involved in their kind of mobile networks and how they're using that which is very interesting because I know that's a big play for them and uh, their colleagues at eBay. And finally, Christelle Dubell is head of sustainability at Vodafone, um, which is obviously a big topic now for businesses in general, um, and certainly in this space. Um, now, both of our previous speakers have given a sense of the context, but <coughs> just to set ourselves up, I'm going to throw out a few numbers which give a sense, I think, and always kind of shock me, about the pace of change in the mobile world, um, and also the power that we're deriving from that. So... By 2020, there's expected to be about 20 billion connected devices around the world. So that's tablets and so on and so forth. That is creating massive amounts of data, as we all know. We talk about big data all the time. What does that actually mean? But Eric Schmidt of Google says that we're creating five exabytes of data a day. Now, that's a crazy number, which I don't really understand, but it's a lot bigger than the numbers we deal with. So gigabytes, metabytes, terabytes, this is a whole other degree of byte. And... To understand the power of that and, and the processing power that's enabling, I mean, how many of you in this audience have an iPhone 4 or a newer iPhone than that? Okay, so to give you a sense of the power processing power you possess in your hands, um, those devices have more computing power than all of NASA possessed when it sent its first man to the moon. Many of you may have heard that, and I've used that in lectures before, and yet it always kind of strikes me as how incredible that is. 69 is in the guide of the moon, and cumulatively, an entire space agency had less power in it than that iPhone. And that's what people are carrying around, carrying around with them all the time. 
Now, it's not just the smartphones themselves, of course, which are kind of powering this innovation. Many of you will have heard about uh, a, a program uh, in Kenya called M-Pesa, which is a money transfer program all designed around mobiles. Now, often that's very low-tech mobiles. It's a way of transferring money in text messages to do everything from buying flights to buying sugar. And not only is that kind of very powerful, but again, to get a context of how big that is in the country, uh, in an interview we ran on my pages recently with the head of Safaricom, which runs M-Pesa, it was reported that 31% of Kenya's GDP switches through that system. So an entire, a third of a country's GDP, and that's a big country in African terms economically. Very powerful indeed. And of course, with the conflict in Syria and elsewhere, in places where journalists have trouble getting from, getting to and reporting from, the mobile phone has become the kind of most powerful tool to express what's happening there through cameras, through video, and being able to post that online very quickly. So I think the power we're dealing with is pretty significant. And where that heads, where that takes us, um, I think is kind of ripe for discussion. But let me start with you, Stefano. I want to give us a sense of, as a, someone who works for Huawei, you know, a Chinese company um, in a space that's um, growing probably the infrastructure in the background of tech, where do you see the space we are now and where we're heading as we go? Can you give us a bit of context on that front? Yeah, thank you. Um, you see, um, all the things uh, that uh, are underpinning these digital revolutions are, of course, uh, also supported by technology that is implemented. Technology has had some um, very high speed of uh, evolutions because of supporting the services that we are looking at right now. Um, the, the, you mentioned some of the you know, numbers in terms of how fast uh, it moves or how big it is. And I think it, the other important thing to, to notice is also behavior of, so how much has changed the behavior of people. So it actually impacted the whole aspect, not just the technology, but also socials, and, and I've seen some of the titles of this conference, this politics, and so on. Um, so from uh, our perspective, uh, it's uh, very important to, to understand that, uh, you know, we need uh, in this world uh, uh, people uh, like Huawei who actually invest uh, in order to help and support and enable those type of uh, evolving path, and that's, uh, that's extremely important. Um, some of the things that Ed has mentioned are happening in the UK, I, I was uh, extremely proud because Huawei has been at the base on all of this, in the deployment of broadband with BT on an EE for the, for the 4G launch, and Vodafone for, um, for their development of their infrastructure with big announcement I heard in terms of investment, which of course we're very pleased of. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, <clears throat> we, 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 we take a big pride in, in being part of this. Now, as far as concerned uh, technology, uh, the, the things that uh, is happening is fundamentally infrastructure needs to enable these big data to be stored and transferred. This is the main thing. And then, of course, the third thing that it needs to enable is processing. As I had mentioned before, the business intelligence is becoming progressively the most important thing because it is not only needed to understand what the customers are doing in order to beam the services in the right directions, but also is used to um, optimize infrastructures. You know, we need to remember as well that is not a minimum thing. So very often data is not used to actually go and look at the content, but actually the data is used to understand how the infrastructure needs to be evolved in order to be effectively and efficiently transporting those means. Uh, in terms of storage, you know, um, you mentioned about 
tera, peta, whatever uh, number of bytes and so on. I think that uh, that is going to be the most important uh, aspects in the digital revolution because um, it is true that we don't have any more those uh, amount of papers that we put in uh, either on uh, big uh, bookshelves and so on. But on the other side, I think you have increasingly found out that in your houses you started to have some big art disks and the art disks are never enough. You know, I just built a house and on the top of the house I built like a, a computer center, a data center. Um, so, so yes, the technology and digitals are bringing some enormous advantages, but also we need to remember that there are things that need to be done, like saving your data and so on. And the storage will become increasingly important for size, for cost, and all these kind of things. And as far as the speed of transfer, you know, that's where a lot of uh, attention has been concentrated because um, uh, not only it's important to be on a move connected everywhere, but the other extremely important thing is that your data, the data that we deal with every day, may be distributed in different places. And actually one thing that I be believe is going to strongly happen in the future is that those data centers will start to be located in your own house, so you will be the master of your own data centers in your own house. And, uh, and that will require a lot of memory in your houses. It will require a lot of good connectivity. So we are seeing these all across the world. And of course, for different reasons. Different places and different countries have different cycles in their evolution. And so in certain places, of course, it's about trying to go beyond what the services being already provided. In some other places, instead, it's just to provide them for the first time. And we shouldn't be surprised how, for example, some people are extremely happy uh, or, or, or to use a, a, I don't know, let's say a half a megabit per second because maybe they never used it that before. Or some other people maybe in a place where we never thought that they're using fibers. For example, I just learned, you know, in China they don't use a microwave uh, technology, which is a, a radio technology for transferring, because they have a fibers everywhere. So, you know, you, you find out in different countries you have different technology and different development. And um, last thing on this specific is uh, about behaviors. You know, I was just thinking uh, how UK has evolved, and uh, despite I'm Italian, I've been now in the UK for many years, and I do remember in uh, something where 1996 when I arrived here the first time um, to start to work, and I noticed that uh, while in Italy everybody uh, were extremely proud of their mobile phones and they were exhibiting the uh, mobile phone all around, um, in England, you know, nobody was really showing mobile phone, everything in the pocket, very discreet, always silence, never use it, and so on. But you go out today, and you go in the tube, you go on the train, you know, and everybody, absolutely everybody has a mobile phone or a mobile device with their assets, or exchanging data, or looking at email, or listening to music. The behavior change is amazing, because we always talk of how resistant are people to changes. But the digital world has changed that. And the last fact I want to mention for this specific topic is just my dad, who has always hated music, and they always, I, I lived my, my youth in turning volume up and my dad turning down, and today he's running around with an iPhone and putting music in his ear. I think that's, that's incredible what mm. technology can do and what digital era has been able to transform. Let's pick up that with Narek. <coughs> On the PayPal side, can you give us a sense, because that's... That change is obviously happening, and you're a business that has a very clear interface with consumers on a very kind of human level, I suppose. Um, and obviously with the eBay bit, I think mean, you have this mobile turbo checkout whereby you can kind of 
connect your PayPal account to your eBay account instantly, and in theory that means in two minutes you can process a transaction on your mobile. But can you give us a sense of, of how you've seen that change in terms of how mobile is used by your customers and how you as a business need to be able to respond to that using that mobile interaction as the key interface? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good question, and we actually live it every day. We're seeing that cultural change. I've been at PayPal for seven years this year. I was actually employee number five, and I've been and seen that evolving pattern. Um, if you look at eBay, at, at PayPal, we were designed to send money from a Palm Pilot to another 11 years ago. Never really took off, but the concept stayed. Um, and to your point on eBay, um, a lot of people now are quite comfortable to sit on the train and purchase the product. Um, so I think the big thing for us is, from a consumer perspective, there's a lot more expectation. They're a lot more connected. I think it's a common theme here. To the point you made on, on Turbo Checkout, they're expecting simplicity. Like it's, it's get out of my way. There are a lot of other options I could take. And I, if I made the decision to use your product right now, um, I want to go through it as soon as possible. That relies on the infrastructure being there, which is good to see the evolution of it because before it was very hard to find a 3G network where you had to go and there was a particular corner in the building where it worked. Um, but we've seen that evolution to a point where, particularly the role I'm playing right now, we're using the phone as a way for merchants to accept payments as well. So the product I'm leading is, is called PayPal here. And, and the idea behind it was, could you give the smallest business out there a product where they could take payments, credit cards, PayPal, cash, and checks, and run it all through their phone, rather than reinventing something? So I think, from our perspective, the, from a consumer point, it's opened it up. The expectations have changed. Um, people want things now. They want it immediately. They want it frictionlessly. I think from a business perspective, the really interesting angle for us, both PayPal and, and eBay, I think generally, it sort of levels the playing field. Because as you said, the power you have on an iPhone is as good as any other computer. Um, so I think slowly, and I think the previous session was talking about that, the smaller guys are going to be able to compete a lot more fiercely. I think before it was... Well, if you want to be in the digital world, you have to have super expensive infrastructure and everything else. Actually, now if you're a small business, you can run the whole thing from your iPhone. You, know, you can take bookings, you can take payments, you can run everything through that. So I think it's going to change significantly how businesses trade. Um, from the smaller to the biggest, to the largest merchant, we have large merchants we're in conversations with that I, and as a consumer I see it. You walk into stores and a lot of them don't have cash registers anymore. Right? They have iPads walking around the store, people walking and, and actually serving you better. So be it the big guy or even the smaller guy, if you walk into a market today, you expect to pay by card. You expect to be able, some people are quite fine to pay by cash, but actually there's an expectation from consumers now that I walk into your business, you should be able to take a card payment. Is that just, before I come to, to, to Maria, I mean, you're Brazilian, which is a super connected country, yes. social media, massive. Do you see those same trends happening there as happening in the UK? Um, because obviously, smartphone penetration, I assume, is slightly lower than it is yeah. 
here and yeah. across Europe, for instance. What about the trends in terms of how mobile is pushing businesses and kind of the consumer behavior piece there? It's a good question. When I go back, it's interesting just to observe the difference. I think the UK had a natural evolution. I think the BRIC countries like Brazil will actually skip a phase and they'll go straight into the smartphone. Um, Brazil as an e-commerce country still needs to do a lot of work because when you buy stuff online, the distribution network is not there yet. Um, so I think that's the bit they'll struggle, but they could jump quite quickly to the mobile services business. It's a very face-to-face -face culture. Um, so people are quite used to somebody go to your house and do your nails or cut your hair or something like that. So I can see taxis in Brazil taking payments, card payments in their cars. E-commerce, I think it still needs that little extra step. And from what I've seen, even just talking to PayPal people in, in Brazil and friends that work in the industry, a lot of the big retailers are creating their own networks, which will be a challenge for the smaller guys. Um, and in the UK, because you have such a good network, it works well for the smaller guy up to the, to the largest guy. I think that's why particularly eBay was so successful here. I think there's a, there's a very good culture of people buying and selling stuff. And actually during the recession, we saw a lot more people selling stuff on eBay because typically you would give it to the charity shop or something like that. But actually people started to say, wait a second, I can make 100 pounds on this table if I sell it. Take a picture, literally in five minutes it's, it's listed. And, and to be fair, eBay's big shift on mobile was a big shift just generally as a business was due to mobile. Yeah. They made the app simple so people could just literally take a picture and, and list it. Maria, can I come to you? I mean, video is obviously very interesting, and you were obviously there in the early days of video on demand when it was through Virgin and so on and so forth, which I mentioned and you mentioned to me. That, on the one hand, is obviously changing a lot. So consumer behavior, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, is meaning that people want to watch video on the go wherever they are, whatever device they have, if they're on the tube, let's say. Um, or meeting the guy they don't want to meet on the two platform as, as the minister did. Um, <clears throat> but that obviously poses massive data issues for those kind of devices and kind of networks and so forth. Uh, maybe give us a sense of how video has changed and the video on demand piece of that has changed. Partly to reflect on consumer behavior changes, but also the infrastructure and what you guys as a business are able to kind of provide to make it more accessible for what consumers want. So, yeah, so one of the interesting things that I saw recently is the BBC said for iPlayer, that they now have 18% more year-on-year -year usage on mobile and uh, tablet devices. And the usage of video on TVs and devices connected to TVs has actually gone down 8% year-on-year. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Although some of the other trends I see are, you know, like Parks Associates say, well, you know, everybody says video is going up on, on every single device. And yesterday I was at the streaming media conference and um, Yumi had done a, some research with Decipher, which is part of iBurbia, and they set up sort of uh, different systems for people to test out their, their content and, and, and ask how people use it and, and all of that. And one of the sets of research that they did was to see how people consume content. And they said, you know, people consume content on devices um, and it's actually kind of regardless of the device. I mean, they may consume more or less, but they decide, I want to watch a video. But what matters, and it doesn't matter what device it is, what it matters is where they are. 
And essentially what they were saying is that a lot of people want to do more exploration when they're at home. And when, when, when they're out, it's a lot more about being very task-focused and doing something very specific with it. And that's, that's, it's, it's interesting to see how people consume things differently. But people are definitely consuming more content on portable devices. For mobiles, it's more about short-form content. Um, for other dev tablet devices, uh, PCs, uh, televisions, clearly it's a bit more about long-form content. So there's a little bit about the type of content you might want to consume. But one of the interesting things is that when you work with a film studio, so I worked with all the film studios to deliver the video-on-demand services for Virgin Cable and Channel 4's Film 4 On Demand. Um, these are the film services for those. And um, when you work with the studios, they have all sorts of things you have to consider about how you license content. And uh, some of that's commercial, and some of that is around um, the technical aspects. So when you license content to deliver, premium content to deliver for mobile devices, um, there are two different agreements you have <coughs> depending on whether or not it's um, over internet or over 3G or 4G. And some of this is a commercial discussion because initially it was, you know, well, we have different deals with different people, or we might um, not want to deliver content over 3G on a mobile device because maybe it's, it's not going to be the consumer experience that we want to deliver. So we're going to make it easy for you to deliver across internet, across all these different devices. But if you want to deliver over 3G or 4G, it's a separate type of deal that you have to set up. So the studios are concerned about how that comes across to the end consumer as well. Of course, now with 4G, it's more possible to watch um, because you have the, the greater bandwidth. But with all of the services that we now have, you have all the data packages, and it makes it, if you, if you have enough bandwidth and you're just sit, sitting here watching something on um, YouTube, then, then you can do that. And the interesting thing is YouTube has hit one billion views a day on mobile devices alone, and that's with... Um, Apple essentially saying, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to make this, you know, a, a core app anymore. So, and, and, and still even with that, you can do it. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, it's interesting to see how many people are using, con is, are using content on mobile devices. And I agree with you, you see people all the time now using it. And just what you were saying about, about eBay as well. Yeah. You know, I use that on my mobile because it's easier and I have it with me and I can buy something. For those of you who like to buy things, it's a lot easier to do that right, right then and right there. How, just on the studio bit, in terms of dealing with intermediaries like a YouTube, for instance, in terms of controlling that interface between the creator or the content producer and the kind of consumer, how do they deal with that aspect of the relationship with mobiles growing? As you said, you know, Apple didn't even make it its core app and it's already got a billion a day. <laughs> So is that something that kind of the, the creators are kind of worried about in terms of that interface as mobile becomes bigger and YouTube becomes bigger? Are they worried about how they control that relationship and kind of who is in charge of that? So this, this, when the studios license content, they license it um, per retailer, per territory, per device, and uh, per rights window. And I won't explain that too much, but it says when you can release that content. And so if you're delivering studio content onto YouTube, YouTube has to do those deals with the studios, which is what they've done. They've talked to them about delivering, we want to deliver SD and, and center definition and high definition, so HD content. 
Um, but they'll do those deals with the studios to say, can we deliver these? Which devices can we deliver to? Um, as far, far as the user-generated content, that's a completely separate thing. But any time anyone wants to license content from the film studios, there's a whole process to go through. Right, so it's all hunky-dory because there's a legal framework, even though there's lots of, obviously, workarounds to that. Well, my my six-year-olds can so, work around that in about five seconds <coughs> on an iPad. So I guess I'm just trying to figure out... You yeah, know, you, when, you're talking about piracy. Well, they do it accidentally. They don't necessarily know what they're doing. But yeah, the point you, is you, that they, it's very They search for do. something. And then, yeah, so there's... Um, around piracy, there's, of course, all the things that the legal framework has to do, which is around digital rights management... <laughs> Um, and all of the security that's necessary. And the rest of it is the whack-a-mole approach, essentially. Oh my god, there's a pirate. You know, yeah. take that one down, another one pops up. Take that one down. And there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of ways that people are trying to track. So watermarking, for example, they know exactly where it seeps out. You know, where, where has it come out? So if you watermark something, you have a, a, a digital signature set to it. So you can say, this is the last place where I applied that signature. It's come from here. And so you can start taking, you know, taking down the things that are, that are exposing your content publicly right. and illegally. Now, Matthew, let's come to you. I'm hoping for a bit of disruption from you because obviously we've had Narek saying, you know, mobile's going <coughs> to change the equation that anyone can disrupt the big boy. <coughs> we always had the iPlayer talked about, which is an amazing product in my view, but funded by and, and created by a massive organization, mm -hmm. obviously with lots of funding. Even eBay and PayPal are no longer small players. You're trying to create an app um, yourself. You're trying to crowdfund it on Indiegogo. Called the Gross Food Guide, the by the way. Guide, yeah. so <laughs> if you could do the plug for me, even absolutely, better. even better. <laughs> but you know, how do you, as a kind of s s kind of sole trader, without a kind of you know, you've got a bit of a brand, but you're not exactly an eBay. You know, how do you take on that? And does mobile help you do that? Is it really going to allow you? as yeah. a sole guy to take on the big boys? So I think, you know, it's, it's traditional and apt at conferences like these that we, um, that we get a few jargon out the way. You did disrupt for me. I was going to do disrupt. <laughs> uh, I feel I should say engage right now and revolution. Okay? Got them out of the way if I come back up. <laughs> Normally when I do this, I do a drinking game. It's a bit early in the morning <laughs> yeah. to do that, so maybe we'll, we'll stay from the have a sip of coffee when I do it. I think we need to keep it and put it, frame it in what mobile is and why, you know, uh, <clears throat> we all remember back in 1996, 1997, 98, mobile was going to be huge, right? I mean, when, and we spent the last, the next kind of 12, 13 years talking about mobile being huge. And what happened and what changed it to lead to your question was two big things. And one was the pipes, one was the infrastructure caught up to speed with our expectation. But the other was the culture. And the other was the way that this revolution, this digital, this online revolution really has changed. And for as much as we talk about consuming, and I think consuming is a big thing, I think what really changed the big thing was creating. So that we're all creators now. The minute you're on your mobile phone, the minute you take a photo, you share it onto Instagram or Vine, if you're really super hip at the moment. Um, <laughs> or, you know, the minute you share a photo of your kids on Facebook, you have now become a creator. And that's what radically changed with the social revolution, if you want. It gave everyone the power to publish. And that is really interesting because, yes, it uh, gives power to the little people in a way that they didn't have before to take part 
Uh, oh, conversation, that's one we haven't used. They to take part in the conversation uh, around social and to contribute. But what it also did was that it changed people's thinking. So yes, we think now that it's perfectly normal that uh, we're at a conference and we're tweeting what's going on and we're basically, we're broadcasting, aren't we? We're publishing and we're building our own personal brand uh, when we're saying, you know, such and such said stupid comment about blah, blah, blah. You know, we're doing that because we want to kind of uh, have an anecdote and we want to kind of um, comment on what's going on. But we're also building our personal brand in doing that. And so creating then when you start spinning it forward into how social is changing the way we think and how mobile is enabling that becomes very interesting because it isn't then just about creating content, it's about creating business. But we start having a cultural and an identity around that we are all creators in a way that we weren't before. And hence, so here I am using a crowdfunding service like Indiegogo to try and launch a new kids brand that I know, given how many kids brands go out there and fail every time, and an and entertainment brand, that 10 years ago I wouldn't have had a hope in hell of trying to do it. But through a crowdfunding site, I can at least have a chance. That makes me a creator and a maker. There's this whole thing now in the world of sustainability around the makers movement, around people who are taking the ability to create, to use their own kind of artisan skills, we're based with social technologies, social purchasing systems like PayPal, to actually create disruptive businesses that they couldn't possibly have used to compete with the big boys even five, six years ago. So I think the key thing is here is that we've all become creators, and when you play that out into an entrepreneurial way, you start getting a really interesting disruptive element for business as well. Well, when we talk about the, the creative bit, and sorry, uh, Christelle, I'll come to you in a sec. Uh, when we talk about this creative bit, um, yes, we create pictures, we kind of publish on Instagram, very powerful. But then what about the bit about who actually controls what that's offered? You know, Facebook bought Instagram because it's sucking up data that they're going to monetize on our behalf without us asking, without us actually understanding the implications of that. I think us meaning the general consumer. Doesn't that put, if you're, if you're running a business, surely you want to own the relationship between yourself and the individual. To give you an example, I <coughs> interviewed the manager of Lady Gaga last year, and he's creating his own social media platform partly because he says, look, if Facebook changes the algorithm, I'm screwed. Yeah. I, wanna, I have a person who has massive amounts of fans, and I can monetize that myself. And unless you control the data, you don't control the interaction, you can actually make it work for you as a business. Now, if you're a small guy like you, at some point, presumably, it's going to be almost impossible for you to opt out of that system. Yeah, is completely. that something that poses questions for you? I, I, yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, I think it's a pertinent question for every big business. I mean, I spent the last year, last five years consulting with companies on their social media strategies in mainly around sustainability, but, you know, we're also going through stages where everyone said, oh, well, we just have to be on Facebook. We just have to have a Facebook page. We just have to. Maybe we should do everything on Facebook. Where your point is exactly right. If Facebook then owns everything that you have, you don't have any digital identity left. Um, we, are in a, we are in a world that we do not know how fast it's moving. We do not know, none, none of us in this room can say where we will be in three, four years' time in terms of which company has the most control over our, our data. 
Though I think with the U.S. government, it's probably going to be a pretty good one if we want to think about it. Oh, now the minister's left, I can say that. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, there are all those unknowns mean that for someone tiny like for myself, for some big companies out there, we're still experimenting. Um, the one thing I would say that I think is the guiding thing for big companies as well as small companies in this world where everyone's creating but everyone's participating and everyone has a judgment in the way they didn't have before is that there are two seems to be guiding rules that steer companies away from really screwing up and, and they're being authentic and transparent. And I think if you authentic, keep that... Authentic, there's another one. Damn, I didn't even... <laughs> Have a drink, everyone. Um, um, but those two, I think, if they, you keep those... And those are two of the oldest principles in the book, right? Yeah. So if you keep those as guiding principles, then all the unknowns we don't know maybe you know, will become clearer along the line. Christelle, finally, I'm sorry it takes so long. As Julia said, five people on the panel is a bit of a tough, tough ask. Um, where does your bit of the puzzle fit into all of this, the sustainability part? in terms of what Vodafone's doing, what you're doing, and how you see that more broadly across the mobile space? So I would say that um, sustainability is what we, um, I would say, deliver by the nature of what we do. Um, I know it sounds a bit, um, it's a bit of a short phrase, but um, through what, first of all, through uh, data and voice, um, but just by delivering that service, particularly in emerging markets, we know that we're already delivering uh, socio-economic improvement. Um, but that's just the, that's just the beginning. Um, we're um, obviously we're looking at innovating in, in value-added services, which actually just you know, multiply the impact that we can have in terms of, of, of health, education, uh, access to financial services. So to, um, and, and what we're trying to do at the moment is trying to figure out whether we, we're best placed to, to, to deliver that innovation or whether we should partner to deliver because being a big multinational the size that we are, it's actually counter, sometimes counterproductive in terms of innovation because we're, we're, so, um, we're so solid that innovation which takes time, which needs patient capital, actually sometimes that just doesn't you know, go well with the, with the culture. So to give you, um, to give you an example, we've, um, we have a, an M-Health an M Health uh, business within within Vodafone, which looks at looking at, which look at delivering solutions for uh, improving access to medicine, for example, in, in, in emerging market. How can we use mobile to um, improve the tracking of malarial drug stocks in very remote parts of Africa? Very simple solution, completely transformational impact on the availability of that drug. This said. Where is the business model for us? So it's, it's, I would say we have a lot of um, sustainability potential at the moment in terms of what we can enable. But the sustainability goes with the commercial aspect of, what, um, of how we can do it. So can we make it commercial to make it, to make it truly transformational on a large scale? That's our challenge at the moment. So for it to work for you, you'd have to find a way of monetizing it to make it the value proposition. This, this is what uh, we believe in. So there's different, obviously different mechanism. At one end of the spectrum, we can experiment with foundation uh, initiatives where we don't ask for any return on investment and um, you know, innovation might um, you know, um, you just take off. And we have the other end of the spectrum where we, um, we apply um, very strict financial criteria to our investment. 
um, because we have a duty to our shareholders. And I've said there's a, there's a zone, or there's a grey zone in the middle where we tend to be more patient. We know that it's, things are not going to take off in one or two years. Things are more complex, things are more blurred, but things may take off in time, and the, the lead time is, is a longer one. And this is where I think we're um, being a big company. We, it's, we don't have the, I would say, the, the cultural luxury of a smaller, as a smaller business in that, in that respect. We have shareholders and, and short-term demand put on us. So it's, 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 it's more difficult for us to, to do so, but we do so. And we have managed to launch uh, Ampesa uh, a few years ago, and now it is a success that it is. And, um, you know, we're looking to, to replicate that into M-Health, M-Education Solution, M-Agriculture, um, and, and all our local markets are innovating, I would say, every day. But the, the true sustainability impact will come if there is scale, and there will be scale if there is commercial appetite and a commercial model that works. That's very important. That's the true test of sustainability. And what's driving those choices that you make about which projects? Is it coming from the ground up in those particular markets, or is it something that strategically as a company you think, okay, there's a great market here, let's drive so it? So it's interesting. I've just done a little bit of work looking at mapping innovation in Vodafone and looking at, you know, how do we actually innovate? And um, the, first, the first sensor is very decentralized. And I would say that's probably reassuring. Uh, yes, we have an R&D function and they do some innovation. Our group commercial function innovates. We also have our enterprise uh, business, the part of our business which sells to big multinational who also face sustainability challenges. So we are being pushed and we've been invited to innovate for them through, for example, machine to machine. So that's very important. So it's very decentralized. Local markets, I would say, because they are so close as a customer, are extremely good at coming up with innovative solution to solutions to problems. And we are also pushing innovation from, a, I would say, a global perspective to try to, um, to rationalize away the, the things that we look at, to kind of focus, to bring a focus at certain points, uh, to, to, give, to give more chances of innovation to actually get somewhere. Um, I'm going to see if there are any questions in the audience, because I'm conscious of time. There's some mics, and if you do have any, if you can um, identify yourself, that'd be great. And if it's for something specific, obviously, points right direction. There's a lady here. If there's a mic just coming. Hi. Um, I'm Etta Saunders, and I'm a children's and youth media specialist. And I've been talking a lot recently to publishers about how to um, create multi-platform titles. I mean, most, most children's publications do have um, websites, but the conversation is all about how to monetize these things. And um, in my discussions with clients, um, I suppose my question is really for um, Narik, because um, it's about e-commerce. Um, the stumbling block with the ideas we talk about are always boiled down to how do kids pay online without running to their parents with a credit card. And I wondered whether PayPal had any plans to do a sort of PayPal piggy bank with vetted partners so that kids can have their Christmas money and birthday money mm -hmm. in a little PayPal account and become uh, involved in e-commerce directly. Yeah, that's a very good question actually because um, I was personally involved in part of that project. Um, we are looking at youth accounts, so we do see, especially with digital content, um, the younger generation starts quite early. Like my niece is five and she knows how to operate an iPad. <laughs> she unlocks it, she goes into anything. Um, 
So the answer is yes, we are looking, we are actually trialing in the US the concept of a youth account. So very similar to what you were saying, so the parent could open a PayPal account for their child, um, not only make funds available, but also if they wanted to have a certain degree of control, they could authorize that before it actually goes through. Um, we are doing some trials with universities as well and schools. So paying for school meals and all that today is a bit of a pain. It's, you know, the parents have to know when or leave the money aside. It, it's just a system that it works because there wasn't anything better in place. I think there's enough systems now to, to make it better. So sort of short answer, yes, we are working on something. That's great, because it's a good marketing opportunity as well to be, for companies to be sort of approved for use on that. It sort of yeah. would give them yeah. a certain profile in that area. Yeah, and considering the connected nature of it, a lot of, so we did a project with a university where somebody was actually collecting all the books and then selling them on eBay after the term. So they had their own little businesses within the schools. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a really interesting area. It's sort of growing in all different directions. Um, but we're definitely looking at it and investing a lot of time to, Good to crack it. Okay, Just out of curiosity, I mean, does anyone on the panel have any like, concerns about this idea that kids are becoming consumers already when we live in a big consumer <laughs> society? I mean, when we talk about innovation, obviously we've got the kind of consumer <coughs> bit of it. We've also got the video stuff, which has good bits, obviously, but also has a lot of cat videos going around. I mean, what is the point of innovation? I mean, isn't it, you know, should we be doing more sustainability stuff to save the world or stuff? I mean, where do you get the mix? I mean, well, kids are, <coughs> kids are consuming and, and trading every day. I mean, you know, it, mm -hmm. the, what's interesting about kids' entertainment a lot of the time is, and the challenges that some of the biggest <coughs> brands have had in making, making money is how do you make money off, you've got to make money off the parents, right? It's very difficult to make money off the kids in it, but if you think something like Moshi Monsters, Moshi Monsters became such a massive hit and actually has made a lot of money through offline, through trading cards, through the currency that kids use in school. They don't have mobile phones, well my kids don't have mobile phones in schools and most kids under 10 don't, but they do have other currency that gives them cachet, credibility, and it, you know, I used to, you know, we used to trade sweets and marbles, but I'm very old. Um, <coughs> so, I mean, I think kids have always been trading, they've always been doing this. It, it's, it's the, it comes back to this cultural and also this level, at what point do we bring our digital real world into our old school real world, and, and how do we kind of weave it together <coughs> so that we have the, uh, the safeguards that we, we, we have come to expect. And I guess yeah. big brands have been doing this Forever. I mean, Snap, Crackle, and Pop are not aimed at the parents. It's kind of aimed at the yeah. kids to convince the parents by it. Sorry, yeah, Maria. so when, when I was a kid, you know, I'm assuming a few other people this happened to as well, you got an allowance for doing things around the house. Clean that, I'll pay you some money. Okay, okay. And then you take that money and you spend it, and your parents allow you to spend it how you want. And you buy things like trading cards with bubble gum, which I did because I'm also that old. And... Um, you know, they don't really say, I'm going to control exactly what you're buying. And it's different now with things online, but if you have an e-wallet, an electronic wallet, for example, you can control how much money goes in it and then how much they can spend out of that. Because one of the big concerns I've heard from parents is, is just that, you know, their kid has managed to figure out um, how to spend, thing on, spend things on their Apple account, and they come up with these immense bills because they've just kept, you know, purchasing more and more top-ups to their game. 
And uh, so, yes, exactly what you were saying about having some degree of control, control. whether it's through an electronic wallet, um, so that you can then, uh, you know, cap the amount, or or on the purchase itself, so you can actually cap what's actually being purchased. Those those facilities are in place. I think that uh, as everything, uh, anything in life, uh, you need to have uh, rules and uh, things that uh, you know regulate the way you use, uh, utilize things. And for digital data or digital world, there's nothing different. So uh, what, what is important is that uh, there are ways to actually apply those regulations, those rules, those controls, and so on. And I think there are plenty of examples of, uh, you know, softwares and stuff that you can do in order to control and to be able to exploit to the best these type of capabilities. I don't think that you know, digital media just means that anyone can do whatever they want. So the rules need to be in place anyhow. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of these things come naturally, some of this comes a bit more difficult. There's always a, a way to bypass, you know, but that is true in any world, you know, in, in anything. And, um, and uh, as such, uh, I think that uh, the important is that uh, when we actually come out with a technology or, or whatever, we need to make sure that we have a way to apply it properly and to make sure that that technology is actually useful. But uh, our, a question I have for you then on that front is, are businesses doing enough to be the explainers of that? I mean, who determines these rules we talk about, really, you know... For instance, Huawei, you know, the, the, the notions that it uses and other companies, you know, can easily access information that they shouldn't be accessing without much difficulty. So is the role of business party to explain these changes a bit better than they have been? Or do you, would you guys say that business has been doing a pretty good job of it in terms of kind of trying to give a sense of where this is going? Or is it really because consumers are driving it so much to some extent you're responding purely to what? They're doing on the ground. I don't think that it's any different from what it was in the old days. I think the rules are driven by the society. So I don't think that there is any specific role different from the past. We still have people who provide content, still people that provide means, still people utilize. So I don't think that the actual um, you know, roles are different. What it could be is that there are different people in different roles. We are seeing that while in the past there some certain roles were only open to some specific organizations of a certain size, of a certain whatever, now are open to other people as well. But the roles are actually very, very similar. So what I, what I think you're, 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 you're quest- you were asking me is that any, any, all of us have actually have a role into defining these rules. So from a Huawei perspective, we're just the supplier and enablers of these technologies. We just need to make sure that whenever we provide something, we explain how to utilize this, how to integrate it, and we help to do that. As far as concerned, um, natural provider or service operator, they actually take that and they utilize it in a certain way, and they also put some rules to their users, because uh, there are rules that uh, the operators put to the user, and then over the top or other companies are not trying to reduce and just trying to encapsulate a much bigger uh, environment, which, which of course is as a, such a different nature, like it could be PayPal or whatever, they actually have other rules, uh, you know, like, like you need to comply to. So I don't think there is any change really in that. What is changing is that uh, things can, um, can be implemented much faster, things can be adapted and introduced much faster, and uh, many more people can have access to different roles. I think really that's where the difference. Now, Mark, before we go to another question. Yeah, I was just going to comment on that. I think 
I'm with you, and I think the feet, all the companies will be regulated anyway, depending on what vertical they're in. I think the feedback loop got a lot quicker. You know, people will, if you're watching the iOS 7 announcement, literally as they're showing the screens, people are already making up opinions and, and actually throwing up. The iOS, how it, you mean the launch of Apple's new of operating Apple's system? Of Apple's iOS, yeah. Um, people are sitting at that event already judging the product. It hasn't even come out yet. Um, so I would say even if a company is doing something they believe is right, they'll get that feedback immediately. And if they're not, so I would say it became a lot more transparent. You right. can't push a bad experience to somebody and expect somebody to, to put up with it. They'll go on social media, they'll go everywhere, and, and they will be heard, I guess right. is the... Another question? Anyone? Uh, gentleman at the back, please, on this side. Again, just let us know who you are, that would be great. Yeah, hi, Nick Allen. Um, going back to the title of the session, Innovation in the Mobile World, what are the big game-changing discontinuity innovations that are coming in the next three to five years that kind of worry you that will change the game? 4G's here now. What's the next one or two? Christelle, do you want to, just to repeat the question of anyone, what is the next 4G, by the next three or four years, what is the next big game-changing innovation that you think will come? So I would think that it's, I mean, it's something that's actually not new, but um, will be innovative in, its own way, in a way it's applied as machine-to-machine. I think we're just at just the beginning. Explain, maybe explain a bit more about um, that. Machine to machine is um, the art of connecting things with things and collect data. And you can collect data about pretty much everything. So to give you an example, uh, machine to machine is about to disrupt the world of, um, of, of, of car insurance, automotive in in insurance. Um, but because through the technology, you will be able to basically track driving behavior on a real-time <coughs> basis. And that will dictate what the premium is for the driver's insurance, rather than you know looking at your age, your sex, and you know and then giving you a random looking at statistics and giving you uh, a premium based on what the general population would behave like at in your in your in your according to your criteria. So usage-based insurance is going to completely change how are we going to charge for uh, motor insurance, for example? And that's just, that's just the beginning, you know. Um, we are able to look at <coughs> logistics, you know, refilling of, um, let's say, Coca-Cola uh, distributing machines. Why, why pay someone to go to a, a machine to only find out there's only 10 bottles missing and it actually didn't need to be refilled? Through machine to machine, you are able to um, understand the level of the need for replenishment to each of those machines in your portfolio of machines and basically be much more efficient in the way you're, you're, um, you're, you're servicing them. So, and the, there is no end to, to, I'm an absolute complete fan, as you can tell, but there's no end to, to what this can be applied to. And it, I would say as a price of um, the, the, the machine-to-machine units go down, just like the price of mobile has gone down over the last 10 years, the, uh, the opportunity for innovation of what we apply it to is just multiplied. Yeah, so the Internet of Things is another way of terming Absolutely. it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a very interesting... The guy who designed the original iPhones and iPads, the hardware designer, not Jonathan Ive, who everyone in Britain is obsessed with, but a guy called Tony Fidel, his new company is creating thermostats, which are kind of interactive. Mm -hmm. It's called Nest, and it sounds really boring, but it's pretty amazing sure, because yeah. the whole point is that it saves energies it's disrupting the energy crisis. It's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Matthew has some interesting kind of examples as well that he wanted to throw in there. Well, well, I think coming off 
the internet of things and, and things to things is that we're becoming things as well. Um, and specifically around if you're wearing a Nike fuel band or a pedometer or any of these yeah, things, this is... Uh, the three alpha know. males on the panel have this Nike band. <laughs> That's hmm. the first time I've ever been called an alpha male. Um, <laughs> but this whole notion or, of... Or an elf, yeah. <laughs> or an elf, even, yeah. Um, but this whole idea of quantified self of what we are now looking to track everything we're doing, how we're tying that in, how we're using mobile to set our own goals, to set goals against our friends and everything. It's really interesting. It is tapping us into an area of data where we've never been before. But it also has uh, insurance and, and I would say less salutary insurance implications as well. Because I know of one uh, financial services company in the US at the moment that is handed out, not Nike fuel bands, because other brands are available, um, but a way of quantified self showing what you're doing in exercise. And it's tied it to gym membership of the company. So if you're using it, you can get much lower rates on gym membership. But they've also done it this way, is that they've used the data they're getting to go and renegotiate their health contracts, healthcare and insurance contracts with providers which sounds great, right? Except that they are tracking their employees every day they go into the office. And they are now actively tracking their employees' lifestyle and will be able to shape premiums for their own employees based on quantified self. Now, that's an encouraging thing maybe, but could be a very uh, negative thing as well, depending on how you look at it. Where did you have a yeah, thought so, on that, the so next big thing? There's three things that I'm seeing. One around video technology. The next thing is 4K. So 4K is essentially, you know, take, take your TV screens that you've got at the moment and put them all next to each other. It gives you a lot uh, more resolution, much more than high definition. But people are seeing that mostly with an uptake of, of television screens maybe over 50 inches. Um, the other piece is, is the wearable computing. So, I mean, wearable computing has been around for a long time. The, the precursor to the um, Google Glasses I saw from uh, MIT over 10 years ago. So, but that's, that's now starting in exactly what you're talking about with the fuel bands. Um, and there's a technology called organic light emitting diode. So we get televisions now that are plasma, LCD, liquid crystal display, or LED, which is light emitting diode organic light emitting diode is taking that as an organic material that creates light, pressing it between two pieces of glass and now plastic so it's flexible. Mm. So you can actually wear, you know, displays and that can, be, you know, it can be part of fashion but it can also be part of something that allows you to or you can just sort of roll it out. So Samsung was um, displaying that recently as, as their keynote. And the other piece is the connected home, and you touched on it very fast. So the connected home is more than just smart energy devices. Uh, you can, it's also about surveillance systems. It's also about other aspects of security, like being able to turn your lights on and off. Um, it's about connecting that to what the next trend is that people are looking towards, which is the multimedia home gateways. So already at home, you might have a cable box in your house or some other device that gives you, you know, whether it's a freeview box or something like that, that gives you the ability to watch um, 
television and on-demand services on your television screen. Well, that's now starting to connect maybe to the rest of the home so that you've got an internal network that could also start incorporating other technologies, one of which is called Zigbee and the other which is called Z-Wave, although I keep calling it Z-Wave because I've lived here for 17 years. Um, and that's just other ways of connecting these bits of the connected home. Thank you. Well said.